Thanks for tuning in to My Weight Live, the podcast where we talk to medical experts about the latest research and how you can apply it to reaching your best weight. If you'd like to learn more, visit us at myweightwhattoknow.com or search My Weight What to Know on Facebook. We're always posting new articles, videos, and tools that make living a healthy life easier. Welcome to My Weight Live, everybody. I am so excited because tonight we get to talk to Sandra Aliyah, a food addiction counselor and patient advocate, about what we can do to make peace with food, an important issue for many of us. So let's get started. So Sandra, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. So before we get into all the exciting science and tips and suggestions you're going to share with us, I'd really love the viewers to get to know you a little better. And one of the things you've told us before is that you feel as though you've lived two lives. Tell our audience what you mean when you say that. Yeah, I'm really at a unique place in my life where I have spent 15 years of my life in a body that was overweight and eventually obese and unfortunately morbidly obese. And I've spent the last 15 years of my life in a healthy body size. So I'm really at this unique place in history in my life, or I'm just getting old. One or the other. <laughs> We're all there. <laughs> um, you know, I can really speak to what it's like to try to navigate a world that was definitely not made for my size and the emotional distress that I experienced and how it affected my career, my relationships, my well-being. I oh. wish that I could tell you at that time that it was only my weight and my eating that were out of control, but every area of my life was spiraling out of control. Obesity affected everything. My marriage was breaking down. I was caring for my mother who suffered from obesity herself and bipolar disorder. Oh. I had crippling, paralyzing depression. And I was on extended sick leave from work. It just, you know, it was something that I could not get a grasp on. And it was really just making my life smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, I was able to gain control. I identify as a food addict and I lost over a hundred pounds wow. 15 years ago. Um, and you know, the doctors tell me statistically, this is nearly impossible to do. Um, <laughs> And I attribute my success to treating my eating and my weight as an addiction. I really attribute my success to that. And I eliminated my trigger foods. Mm -hmm. um, for me, this lessened the cravings for them. And it was just easy for me. I just didn't have foods that had refined sugar and refined flour. And then I just ate everything else. And for me, that was a really inspiring place uh, or an inspiring way to live and travel and eat out. Um, but most importantly, I really addressed all the underlying issues, all the emotional drives that I had to eat. Um, you know, I was really ill-equipped at dealing with life. My only coping mechanism was food. It didn't matter if I had a fight with my boyfriend or I got a bad grade or messed up at work. The answer was always food. And I had to find new ways of dealing with life. Well, gosh, you've covered so many things in there. So many things that I would really like to get your practical suggestions and tips with. Uh, because I think, you know, you've, you've talked about several things, dealing with the emotions that were challenging, you know, um, figuring out how you were going to cope besides eating. eating. Um, so let's take one step back though. You've had 15 years in one body, 15 years in another. What was the turning point that kind of led you from, from one path to the other? What, what, was the, what was that moment where you said things are going to change? 
it was deciding that the scale was not going to be my measure of success. I really decided if I lost another pound or not, it didn't matter. It honestly didn't matter because I couldn't keep eating the way that I was eating and I couldn't keep living the way that I was living. So I just let go of the scale. I say today, my weight is none of my business. My business is to eat whole foods and move my body and work my weight ends up, it ends up. And I have to make peace with that because in the past, that inner critic, that harsh judgment, that self-condemnation literally drained me of every ounce of energy and motivation that I had to change. And I remember that first year, I was not going to weigh myself. Now, at the end of that year, because everybody around me was just, you know, they, what, what are you doing? What's going on? So I did get on the scale and something very interesting happened. That first year I dropped 75 pounds and you know what? I was disappointed. That's the scale for me. Oh my and gosh. I knew like, because I wanted it to be a hundred. Now but I went on. Doesn't that speak to the power of the scale? You know, we, we can have tremendous success and it's just whatever that number is. It's not what we want to see. It's so it was difficult. never, ever going to make me happy, right. you know, and I went on the next year to lose another approximate 25 pounds. But see, that to me didn't sound like a crazy successful story. Oh, it took me two years, but that's how my mind tricks me. Um, so it's better for me that I just don't even get on the scale. And that way I can feel good about all the other amazing things that I'm, that is happening in my life. Okay. So you talked about saying the scale is not going to determine success for me. And I think if there's an act of self-love, it's, it's that, you know, just saying, I'm not going to let my life be ruled by the scale anymore. There are things that are more important. And you and I have talked a lot about self-acceptance and how important it is. What role did self-acceptance play in your journey? Because we're going to play a video in a few minutes of, of people talking about self-acceptance, but I want to get your take on it first. For sure. Whatever, I feel that whatever you do not accept, it is very difficult to, to change. So you cannot change what you do not accept. And whatever I resist persists in my life. Yes. And so when I was in this place of, I can't stand to be in my body, I can't stand to be in my skin, I was desperate. And I was looking for a desperate solution. And in that state of mind, I fell prey to the diet industry sure. because I would pay anybody any amount of money if they told me I could lose 50 pounds in six months. And I did do that because I just couldn't stand to be in my body one more day. So when I got to this place of, okay, this is where I am and this calm could fall over me mm -hmm. and peace could come over me, I could make better decisions because I wasn't in this frantic place of, I got to change it. I got to change right now. It just was easier for me. All right, Sandra. So we've heard from a lot of experts about why self-acceptance is important. Talk to us about how it's something we can start practicing. Uh, it's so difficult to think about, how am I going to accept myself now? I don't like where I am. Well, here's the hook for most of my clients that I work with. The, the self-judgment, the harshness will drain you of energy. So when somebody tells me I lack motivation, I'm really having a hard time sticking to a routine, I don't try to goal set with them at all. I, I often ask, well, if I was sitting in your head, what are the thoughts that I would hear? And oh, often wow. those thoughts are really kind of awful and draining. Mean. It's sort of <laughs> 
mean? Exactly. It would be like going to a workplace where your boss stood over you and called you names and put you down and was constantly expecting you to fail. You would never thrive in that kind of environment. But yet for a lot of people, that's what they're carrying around in their minds. So if you're looking for more energy, if you're looking for more motivation, we point to this place of self-acceptance and self-love and the way that you think and perceive yourself to be. And so I was just working with a client recently and I, I suggested to him that he is the CEO of his life. And what makes a CEO inspiring? Well, it's the story that they tell and how, what they believe in you. And so, you know, his thing was, but this is really hard and I'm not having success. And I go, yeah, sometimes companies go through that. They got to go through a change or a merger and it's really hard and it's not feeling great. What, you know, what is the leader going to do? He's going to stand up or she's going to stand up and talk about why you're capable, why this is important, why I believe in you. And that's what you've got to do for yourself so that your path and your motivation will be intrinsically motivating. That's what you want. I've never seen anybody flourish as a result of shaming, blaming, or hatred. People just don't flourish in that environment. So the first step is setting up an internal environment where you can succeed. So this environment, the more gentle, the more kind, the more nurturing, the more able you'll be able to get up and do things, give things a try, go to the gym and maybe not be able to do the workout and you're going to say it's fine. Um, you know, have a slip up and you're going to be like, that's okay. I can still see how I'm improving, even though this one moment in time I had a little bit of a slip. So that's my first question. What environment do you succeed in? And now can you create that for yourself? Gosh, you know, when you say if you had a boss who was constantly, you know, criticizing you and negative, I think we can all understand, yeah, that would be hard and I would do worse because I was constantly afraid of being criticized. And yet we do it to ourselves all the time. So folks, I want you to tell us in the comments if you struggle with accepting yourself as you are. And if you've been able to make that shift that Sandra's talking about, how you've been able to do it, because I think we can all learn from, from one another. So Sandra, let's say that someone's on a journey to self-acceptance and they're ready to kind of start digging in and making healthier choices, but they just can't seem to, to get started. What would you say? I, I kind of cut you off. You said step one, what's next? So step one is that setting yourself up for success. And next is build a village of support around you. So obesity is a complex and chronic disease. And there are many contributing factors. So the more support or the more interventions that you have, the more likely you will be successful. So I feel that everyone's village needs some important components. One of them is good sleep hygiene. If you're not sleeping properly, it's going to be very hard to be healthy. The next one is to have a meal plan that you can follow. I love uh, my meal plan. It's so simple. No sugar, no refined sugar, no refined flour, and just eat whole foods. I. It's simple. I don't have to worry about counting carbs or you know, combinations of this or that. Right. Next, I need to move my body 
in fun ways. I'm too old to do stuff I do not enjoy. I'm not going to get on a treadmill and run ever again. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that I shut the door on exercise. Um, counseling is really important for a lot of people. What are the drivers that cause you to use food for comfort if that's an issue for you? So that means if you're not going to use food for comfort, what is going to be your comfort? What is going to be your coping mechanism? Remember, we're setting ourselves up for success. So it's not just like, oh, I won't do it. No, you have a need and that need needs to be addressed. Part of your village could include a physician. Um, and, and I would recommend strongly that it's a sense physician, one that understands obesity. And if you go to obesitycanada.com, there's a directory there yes. where you can find great physicians. We'll link to um, that in the comments, folks, just so yeah. you know, you can, yeah. we'll link to their locator of physicians around Canada who really specialize in managing obesity in a, in a kind, compassionate and effective way. 100%. So I have a family uh, uh, doctor who I adore. I've seen her for over a decade, but I don't see her for obesity management because she doesn't understand, even though she's phenomenal at everything else. Um, we need community. We all need community. You know, um, living with weight struggles can be very isolating. So I need to be tapped into people who understand what I'm trying to do or going to support me, who understand how hard it is to struggle with a food pusher, right? So my family, they might be the food pusher, so I can't go to them. I need to go right. to people who understand why that's difficult. And a very important component, one of the biggest ones for me is mindfulness and spirituality. So addictive eating, compulsive eating, is often mindless eating. So one of the antidotes is that mindfulness because my mind can play tricks on me. It can tell me I'm hungry when I'm not. It can, you know, shut off so that I can eat large volumes of food and only stop when I'm sick so I'm not present during eating. So this mindfulness is really important. This village of support, the, like I said, the more robust, the more likely the support um, the success. So what I love is your village of support. You have some external people in there, physician, you know, people who understand what, you know, dealing with weight issues are like, but you also have some internal resources in there. You consider the village to be getting enough exercise, getting sleep, making sure you have good coping skills. So there's really kind of a broad spectrum of things that you're doing to take care of yourself um, in order to kind of live the best life you can. Exactly. When, what makes me sad is when I speak to someone they've struggled for years, maybe even decades, and they still believe they have to do it on their own. I have to do this on my own. I have to. And I think that really speaks to the bias and stigma. Yes. Because when society and doctors point the finger of blame on the person, what you're saying to that person is don't ask for help. Yeah. You should be able to do help. this for yourself. Right. Yes. It's just your fault. So yes. don't ask for help. And we need to break that down. Oh gosh. All right. I love it. We have so many questions about cravings and how to deal with addictions to food. So I'm just going to jump in there. Let's say that someone is like, okay, I'm accepting where I am. I'm ready to start eating healthier, but I just can't seem to stop craving those ultra processed and less nutritious foods that I'm used to eating. So Linda says, I'm having a real problem not eating dessert after my meals. What would you say to Linda? 
Yeah, so it's important to recognize those high-risk times. And so for Linda, that's after dinner, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And the last thing I want for Linda is to finish her meal and then just sit in white knuckle and resist and just try. No, be kind, be gentle to yourself. No, it's a high-risk time and, and do one thing, just one thing. And it's not that you're promising yourself you won't, right? I often do the, you know what, I'm going to do this first. And if I still want it, I'll have it. And it's that ease. There's no resist and persist kind of energy. So maybe for her, that's, you know, um, I have one client, she takes a walk, but she has to have like a small errand to run. So maybe, yeah, she'll go to the local drugstore to pick up a nail polish on sale. And, that, and that's what gets her out of the house or a lipstick or something. And I know what people are going to say, oh, that's a waste of money. And I'm like, well, is it? Dessert costs money. Exactly. So, and your well-being uh, has value. Right? Or maybe what I do in the summer, because I basically drink water, coffee, or tea, I'll get um, like a tea that's been cooled with no sugar. But there's a little taste to it. And I'll usually get like a huge vat of it, right? And that <laughs> Because I'm drinking it and it's tasty and refreshing. All of a sudden, I'm really, really full. But something I teach my clients with cravings is this great little three-step that you can keep in the back of your head. First thing is a craving is always a lie. Think Mm. about it. A craving is I need something sweet. Mm, You really don't. Um, You know what? I'll just have a bite of it and I'll put it away. Well, actually, that doesn't happen either. Yeah, a hundred times before, (laughs) I've never had a bite and put it away. Or I'll be fine this time. I'm not going to beat myself up, but you know. So identifying and calling it out, you know what, that's a lie. And then I look to what's happening in my brain in this moment. So sometimes it's habit. If I've had dessert, not a hundred times, but a thousand times, neuro, uh, you know, um, neurons that fire together, wire together and develop a strong habit. And then the behavior becomes automatic. And so is it an automatic response? Okay. Or- so I have to interrupt you here and, and say that I've noticed in myself, if I start eating a certain food, when I start watching a TV show, whenever <sighs> I watch that TV show, I crave that food. It is like Pavlovian. So you're exactly right. It's like, you know, those triggers are so strong. There are brains are just, they just, they make it happen. Right. Your brain is interested in the path of least resistance. And especially with emotional eating, if your brain knows that when you're stressed out and you have a pint of ice cream, you feel better. Guess what your brain's going to do every time you're stressed? It's going to say, we know what to do. Don't worry. Go have that ice cream. You're going to be flooded with serotonin, which is a beautiful neurochemical of ease and comfort. And you're going to feel better because your brain's job is to keep you alive. And it doesn't realize this stress is not from a, you know, some sort of wild animal chasing you, but rather just life in modern, you know, in this modern world. world. And yeah. you, know, you you point to something that I think is really important, which is that our brains are trying to take care of us. This yes. isn't because we're bad or weak or stupid. This is just the best way we learn to cope, maybe when we were kids or teenagers or adults. And, you know, our, our, our brains don't know any better right now. And we can expose it to different options. But, you know, I, I feel like that that beating up on ourselves just shuts down everything from being wow. able to move forward. Well, that beating myself up, I I used to do was I used to take out the shame stick and Mm -hmm. I thought if I beat myself up long enough and hard enough, I'll never do that again. And what that actually did was made me eat for comfort because now I'm in a heap of emotional pain from this self-flagellation that now I need food. Yes. So, and then the last step, so call out the lie, try to figure out what's happening in your brain, even 
looking at food could flood your brain with dopamine, which is the neurochemical of desire, of want, of like, oh, I just got to have it. Um, and then the third one is just taking those three deep, deep cleansing breaths, just uh. a pause. A pause. Sometimes in that pause, you can just give that frontal lobe a little bit of a chance to make a better decision. And again, identify high risk times and fill them with high value activities. So if taking a bubble bath does not interest you, don't do that. Right. Just because it works for someone else doesn't mean it's going to work for you. It it never used to really anger me when someone would say, if you want a cupcake, have a bubble bath. I'm like, there's no comparison. (laughs) I'm sorry. Bubble bath, cupcake, cupcake wins every time. I had to find things. So for me, community, being around people is a high value thing. And when I'm around people, I actually don't have interest in food. That's what I've noticed about myself, but that's not true for everyone. So you need to find your own way. So you've said a couple of things that really point to the importance of kind of planning. Um, One you said was identify high risk times. And this is where kind of maybe keeping a food journal might help us do this. Wow. I see over this course of a week, there are certain times, for example, after dinner or while I'm watching TV, where I'm more likely to give into a craving. And then what am I going to do instead? So it sounds like you have a plan when you know you've got a high risk time coming up. You want to make sure you're being social. You're out talking to people. You're, you're thinking ahead. Yes. Yes. I love it. And, and, and if there's any single moms out there like myself, for a long time, my daughter would go to bed at 7 p.m. And then that was my high risk time. So now like the house is quiet and I'm trapped because I can't go out. Right. That was really times that I had to listen to inspiring podcasts about people overcoming addictive eating, TED Talks. I had to do something. I was like, oh, I'm really looking forward to this. I'm really, and and listening to podcasts that would remind me of what I was trying to do and why it was important. So reaffirming the messages. Uh, Netflix didn't help in the same way for me Hmm. because like you, I would think, oh, Netflix in a bag (laughs) would be really good right now. (laughs) Exactly. All right. So I have a few more questions. Actually, I have a lot more questions, but this one is important. Lori says her cravings actually make her angry. She hates the feeling of not being able to eat what she wants when she wants. What would you say to Lori? Yeah. So, I mean, look at it as one day at a time, Mm. one meal at a time, one craving at a time. And know that because you're human, you're not going to be perfect. We can't speak perfectly, act perfectly, and we definitely can't eat perfectly. So if you, I, I think the anger is maybe an energy state that isn't going to produce the best results for anybody, right? Think of right. yourself when you make a decision, when you're angry, it, and why would you keep up a behavior that makes you angry, right? That signals to your brain, don't do that, right? If you know. So what I would suggest is, you know, trying those three steps for the next craving that you have. And if you overcome the craving, that is time to really celebrate. And I mean, do mirror work, get in front of the mirror, talk about how you're doing so well. I used to affirm, I'm getting stronger. It's getting easier. I'm getting healthier. That was sort of my mantra every time. So when we think about potty uh, training children, for example, the first time they go potty, we have a parade. (laughs) Right? Why do we do that? Why do you think we have like fireworks and pray? We're trying to train their brain. That is very good behavior and we want to see that going. So think about that in the same way with your cravings. Celebrate big those first few times. You're not going to always do it. My daughter's eight now. When she goes potty, nothing happens, right? Because it's been ingrained in her that that's a good thing. 
But I want you to kind of use that same sort of tactic for yourself. Any, any success, big or small, you need to celebrate. And then you need to talk about what that means about you. What does that say about you? So All that the positive things, because yeah. that negative voice has been strong for a long time. Exactly. All right. I'm going to pause for a moment and uh, remind everyone about tonight's trivia question. Uh, as always, anyone who guesses the answer in the comments receives our guide to superfoods with some delicious recipes. So true or false, shopping while hungry makes people not only buy more food, it also makes them buy more junk food. All right, Sandra, you've given us a lot of good tips here, but I know there are viewers at home who are thinking even with these tips, they won't be able to resist certain foods. Uh, we did a survey in our group asking people what they did when they had a craving and over half of folks said, I give in, they're just too strong. Are they dealing with a food addiction or is this just, you know, they need to develop more willpower? Well, willpower is an, an exhaustible resource. It's nothing. It's only supposed to get you through a pinch. That's it. Now, for some of us, including myself, cravings are intense, immediate, and overwhelming. Mm. And any weight loss journey sits on two pillars. The first pillar is the mindful resistance, which we've talked about mm -hmm. for a bit. But then there's this other piece called resilience. And so when the mindful resistance fails you, and it will because it fails all of us, we have to get into resilience, the, the, the getting back on the wagon and the quicker, the better. So what I'm more concerned about, you know, that moment in time when you've had a slip or have given in with your craving, it's gone. It's gone forever and don't put any more energy into it. What I'm most concerned about is how you treat yourself after the slip. The way that you treat yourself will determine how long this slip is going to last. Um, and it will also determine whether you get to your goal or not. So the, the, more, the more kindness you can pour on yourself, the more self-compassion, the more likely that slip will just be one little blip on the screen and not focusing on it, not ruminating about it, but just letting it go. It'll never come back and, and being kind to yourself. Gosh, I think that's uh, so helpful. So both Henriette and Jane say that that cravings are something they really struggle with. And I think probably the question on a lot of people's minds is, is there help out there for someone who feels like they're struggling with a food, or as you've put it in the past, a food-like substance addiction? Where yeah. should people uh, be looking for help? And and talk us what, tell us what you mean by a food-like substance. Yeah, so a food-like substance, there's um, food, and then there are chemically engineered highly addictive food-like substances. They are generally industrial made. They are disease causing. And for some people who are sensitive to them, they cause an obsession. And it's very difficult once they start eating them to have a reasonable portion. So the hallmarks of addiction in general are uh, withdrawal. So anybody, even if you don't have a sensitivity, who tries to cut sugar out of their diet completely <laughs> will go through withdrawal. They'll have headaches, they'll shakes, bad mood, right? And can you imagine for someone who has a sensitivity, it's times 10, if not 100. Then there is tolerance, increased tolerance. So there was a time when I could have three cookies and put the package away. Then I moved to the whole roll. But now, now if that box is open, it's calling to me. It's taunting me. I'm not going to stop until all the cookies are gone. Mm -hmm. That increased tolerance. The hallmark to know if you're dealing with food addiction is that you have consequences that you desperately do not want 
and yet you cannot stop. Those consequences are loss of mobility, health, depression, causing your relationships to suffer, wh whatever they are, and you know they're attributed to your eating. You, you know with your whole heart and yet you cannot stop. So there are food addiction programs such mm -hmm. as myself. Um, mm -hmm. You can find on my website. I'm sure you'll put the link in the comments. The link will be in the comments, folks. Right. If you'd like to learn more about Sandra, we'll put several different links to her website, yeah. Facebook, and Twitter. And so my program is built on three pillars, but the foundation is that self-acceptance and that self-love so that you have the energy and motivation to do the three pillars. The three pillars are eliminate your trigger foods, create a community of support, which I offer, and lastly is develop that mindfulness and spirituality. Why at the top of the house is to be neutral and peaceful with food. Uh, like whenever, uh, you know, I get clients who write me and they say, you know, I've lost weight or decrease of meds and that's all wonderful. But my heart sings when they tell me they've found some neutrality with food and that mind chatter, that constant, where am I going to eat? When am I going to eat? How much did I eat? Did I eat too little? Did I eat too much? It's gone. They're like, the voice is quieted. And I know now they're, they're safe. They're safe. They found food serenity. Um, if, if food addiction doesn't quite speak to you, I often recommend um, CBT. So cognitive behavior, behavioral Absolutely. therapy is another great way to deal with the thoughts. I think one of the biggest obstacles to weight loss is your thinking. Honestly, it's not about finding the perfect diet because it doesn't exist. It's not about trying to do triathlons um, because we know that exercise doesn't equal weight loss. It's really your thinking. So whether you tackle that through food addiction counseling, through CBT, um, there's also uh, acceptance behavioral therapy as well, um, but really tackling the thinking. So you mentioned trigger foods earlier, and I want to talk about how you, Sandra, deal with trigger foods and the role that environment plays in terms of how you're able to be successful. Yeah. So trigger foods are interesting. Like I've mentioned, they're generally ultra-processed, refined sugar, refined flour, but sometimes they're salted nuts. So someone might say, well, a salted nut doesn't have sugar or doesn't have flour, but there's something about the crunch and the salt that lights up my brain. And even though it's very painful, I can have a giant bowl of them and suffer later. Same with cheese. Cheese is another one that kind of just, um, it's sort of, my, my caveat is, are you controlling it or is it controlling you? And so if you feel that it's controlling you, then it's likely a trigger food. And for some people, it's just easier not to have the trigger food than try to negotiate how much. You know what? Today I'll have an ounce and a half. And then you're like, uh, another ounce. And then another ounce. And oh my God, now it's six ounces. And, uh, whereas if I just say no nuts it's more peaceful than trying to figure out how many nuts I can have, if that makes sense. I like using this idea of peace as kind of a yeah. way, like, how am I going to be peaceful by not having it in the house, by having small portions, you know, figuring out kind of what works for us based on what our trigger foods are and kind of what approach we've seen success with. Exactly. So I often say I'm not here to villainize any specific food, but rather make a food, a plate of food that is peaceful for you. So for example, if I put two slices of pizza on my plate, that that's never going to be peaceful. I'm that's never going to be enough. I'm going to be thinking, how can I get two more? And oh my God, it's delicious. And I don't want it to stop and I'll never have it again. And I just, the, the compulsive thinking is ignited if I have two slices of pizza on my plate. So it's actually easier not to have them on my plate. All right. So if someone watching right now is feeling a little overwhelmed by the amount of work this might take, um, what would you say to them? Does it get easier over time? 
definitely. So that village of support that I described to everyone, most people feel very overwhelmed with it. But over time, it does become a way of life. And all of those elements of, of your village, you know, good sleep, community support, counseling, moving your body, that actually attracts joy to your life. Mm. The, the, the recipe, the prescription here, one of the side effects is actually joy and fulfillment. Um, people feel really great when they're moving their bodies and eating whole foods. They feel great when they're part of a supportive community. They feel great when they're sleeping eight hours and they haven't done that in 10 years. Uh, these are all and it's so interesting to me because it's sort of the same village when you look at depression, right? So somebody who's depressed may need to take an antidepressant, but they also need good sleep and good diet and movement right. and support community. Um, it's, it's kind of any chronic disease needs a village of support. So Denise uh, posted that she said it gets easier with every bite. And I guess you, we oh, might add with every great. step, with every good night's sleep, it's just going to get easier and easier, which I think what I think is so important. Oh, I like that. So Sandra, like that you are also an amazing patient advocate. You work with Obesity Canada. Talk about why advocacy is so important and how it's made a difference in your life. Yes, I um, want everyone to feel comfortable going to their healthcare provider or doctor for help. And I don't think that's the case right now. I, think I agree. That, yeah. And it's, and there are very good doctors out there and we have to empower our patients with the language and the understanding. If you have lived with obesity, if you have yo-yoed with your weight, we now understand that that has affected your brain. How does that affect your brain? Mine has been affected by obesity. Obesity. I experience food cues in a more dramatic and intense way than someone who has been weight stable their whole lives. When I see uh, cookies or pizza or whatever, my brain lights up in a very different way than someone who has never yo-yoed with their weight. Mm -hmm. And I don't get the same satisfaction from eating that someone else would get. It comes back well. to biology, doesn't it? It's crazy. Exactly. Yeah. And, and there are so many factors outside of my control. So epigenetics and biological factors. The fact that I, my mom, when she was pregnant with me, was living with obesity and bipolar disorder had already set the stage for me to develop obesity. And yet when I went to the doctor in my early 20s, the finger of blame was pointed at me. Why couldn't I control myself? Um, she never asked, did you experience childhood trauma or neglect? And that was part of my story, which also set me up for obesity. And that's not unusual. So I want people to understand there are a ton of contributors outside of your control. Your brain perceives and experiences food differently. And that there, we are finally at a point in history where we have viable evidence-based treatment options at work. But we need to feel empowered to be able to go and ask for help. And if someone is pointing the finger of blame at you, you need to find a new person. It's as simple as you just need to find someone else. That's right, because there are resources out there. The scientific community, we are changing the way we think about obesity and excess weight. Uh, you know, it is it is a changing landscape. So there is medical help out there that that views it the correct way, which is is as a chronic disease. So folks, go visit the Obesity Canada website. Uh, they have tons of resources about how to become a patient advocate. Uh, petitions you can sign. They're constantly um, striving for better care for people living with obesity and making that happen at a governmental level at a societal level and more. 
So Sandra, it is always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. My pleasure. This is definitely my passion. I could talk about it every day, all day. I just, uh, I want people to know that there is hope and um, that there's absolutely nothing wrong with you and that you can find your way to. Oh, I'm so glad you ended there because yes, you're the proof of that. There is hope. It is possible to change your life and, and really continue to keep growing and keep striving and then provide help to other people. You're so yeah. inspiring. Thank you. And I especially uh, find your tip about your environment helpful. And uh, the tip, don't go to the grocery store early because the answer to tonight's trivia question, uh, don't go to the grocery store hungry, because the answer to tonight's trivia question is true. Shopping while hungry makes you not only buy more food, it also makes you buy more junk food. So don't underestimate the, the role of hunger and environment when you're, when you're trying to avoid trigger foods and be healthier. So Sandra, we can't wait to have you back again soon. Thanks so much to everyone watching. Have a wonderful night, everybody. Everybody.